1: Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of LawPod. I'm Rachel Killeen and I'm joined today by Kinga Taborzabo and Megan Hurst, two practitioners that work in the field of victim participation in international criminal law. Now for those that may not know much about this topic, uh, international criminal law is the body of law that deals with international crimes such as genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. We have a permanent international criminal court now And in contrast to earlier manifestations of international criminal law, such as the tribunals set up in the aftermath of Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, the ICC makes specific reference to victim participation. We also have courts such as the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, which has a victim participation model which gives victims actual party rights, similar to the prosecution and the defence. And we also have the Special Tribunal for Lebanon that has a system similar to that at the ICC. So we've seen a real increase in the rights given to victims within international criminal law. And earlier today, Megan and Kinga were sharing some of their experiences with students in the law school about the actual uh, practical work of representing victims and working with victims. So maybe if you both just want to uh,
2: tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Hello everyone, my name is Kinga and um, I work in The Hague at the moment at the Kosovo Specialist uh, Chambers. I'm a legal officer there for the President's immediate office. But before that, I worked for four years at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon that Rachel just mentioned, and I worked as a legal officer for the legal representative of victims. So um, that's where my experience about victim participation comes from. And before that, I worked as a defense assistant um, at the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia.
0: My name is Megan Hurst. I'm a barrister in London these days, but before coming to the bar, I worked for a number of years in The Hague specialising in victim participation in the registries of the International Criminal Court and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Um, And prior to that, I I did other work in post-conflict settings, particularly East Timor with NGOs and Truth Commissions.
1: Hi, so uh, thank you both very much for joining us today. So between the two of you, you now have a number of years of working in this area of victim participation, working you know, directly with victims and also seeing the way uh, these tribunals have tried to incorporate this relatively new voice into their proceedings. I wonder how you are feeling about the project of victim participation within International Criminal Justice these days? I think anyone
0: who works in the area of international criminal law will probably tell you they have mixed feelings, and I think victim participation is no exception to that. There are some reasons to be really hopeful and positive about it. Um, When you meet your clients who are participating victims in the case, um, and I'm currently working on the Dominic Ongwen trial representing victims, you do see that the ability for them to engage with the proceedings is really meaningful to them. And there is no doubt that there have been a lot of positive developments and i think you know it's early days um in this part of the law and, and things are moving but there are also a lot of frustrations um and that comes i think from the fact that this concept as far as it works in international criminal tribunals is still less than 20 years old and I I try and remind myself that when things are frustrating uh, that it's going to be a long process to iron out the wrinkles in the way that the system works and try and find a model of victim participation that works particularly in the context of mass crimes where there are very large numbers of victims.
1: But you would remain hopeful that in time we can reach a kind of formulation that might work in this kind of context?
0: I think there's never going to be a perfect system that addresses all the challenges. I I think that in general, dealing with the the difficulties that victims face in the aftermath of a terrible conflict, there there is nothing that will overcome what the victims have gone through and we shouldn't expect that victim participation can be a kind of panacea. But I do think that we can go a lot further um, in terms of creating procedural mechanisms to enable a meaningful participation which doesn't uh, interfere with the rights of the defence or the possibilities for the courts to function in an efficient manner.
2: Kinga, would you agree with that? Um, Yes, and I I would also add that the way I see it, the trend itself is a very idealist trend and uh, um, this entire idea of... um, uh, bringing victims within the international criminal uh, justice realms started um, as an exercise of humanity, if I may call it like that. Um, it 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 does have some uh, domestic um, precedent. Some of domestic systems allow uh, victim participation in various models. But the way it started at the international realm was about making international criminal procedure more humane and bringing the people who have suffered um, within, um, well, within the courtroom to say so. The problem that I see is that there is one thing that is the idealist trend and then, then the reality is a different one. That's where we have the problems and that's where we have the challenges. I'm not sure that there is one model of victim participation that fits all. Maybe it depends on the crime. Maybe it depends on the number of the victims. And I think I agree with Megan that we're still at a point where we're trying out systems and we're trying out to see what works. And... We shouldn't forget in this process that we're talking about real people, that we we have started this to make it more humane. We haven't started this to make it more procedural and more technical and longer. Um, so I think it's still a trial and error exercise. But I'm also hoping that at some point we're going to realize what fits whom. And if we don't find one model that fits all, maybe we'll find two or three that are adequate to make victim participation meaningful.
1: When you talk about it, making international criminal law humane, what, what do you mean by
2: that? Well, I mean by that is that one of the main criticisms of international criminal procedure is that it's detached um, that you have um, uh, the regions um, uh, that have gone through conflict and you have the victims and you have the societies that have suffered. And then you have a court somewhere, most of the time far away, with um, a very complex procedures with foreign lawyers, sometimes uh, foreign judges. Um, and the entire exercise seems really remote So it seems as if some experts are playing a game somewhere far away and it has absolutely no um, effect on the population and the community that has suffered the particular crime. So making international criminal justice more humane is to give these particular individuals a place in it.
1: And do you think that it has been successful in... Maybe bridging the gap or the distance between these institutions and then these impacted populations.
2: Well, I think we're we're still at the beginning of that road. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is very very hard to bridge that gap. Um, it is uh, one of the main criticisms of international criminal courts as a mechanisms of transitional justice that they don't really, um, they don't really solve the problems that the communities are facing and they don't don't really respond to the needs of the victims so it remains to be seen whether this victim participation can get to a point where it responds to certain needs and I think there are ways to address some of these needs but as we said the model still needs to be uh, perfected.
1: And Megan what do you feel about that because obviously the ICC sits in the Hague and your clients live you know many thousands of miles away do you think that participation has enabled them to be brought in you know to this project of international criminal law yeah I think we're we're
0: heading in that direction but there's a long way to go for, for me I, I have always seen it as a kind of a, a concept of a sort of natural justice in a way that um, when we have court proceedings that deal with a particular incident, in this case a really horrific crime, we should be hearing in that process from people who are affected by it. And and for some of these victims, um, I mean, I think any victim of a really serious crime, whether it's an international crime or, or a regular crime, you know, if your life is changed by an event like that, it, it's very strange when a public process takes place um, dealing with that which is removed from you which you have no say in particularly when it's in another country with rules of procedure that you don't understand with a whole lot of people standing in the courtroom from other countries speaking languages which you don't understand so for me um, it is really important I think as a first step that there's been a recognition that those people most affected by the crimes have a place in the process. So that's, that's not nothing. Um, However, obviously, there are massive practical obstacles. And I think the reality is that making it meaningful in a practical way, it's costly, and it's time consuming, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of will from the the people mostly the states who pay for international criminal justice to spend a lot of money on making victim participation meaningful but the reality is that when you have thousands of victims and they do live in a very remote place um maybe disparate from each other usually speaking a variety of languages knowing very little about the criminal justice system that they're trying to engage with it does take a lot of time and a lot of resources um and there is also a need to make sure that we work efficiently so that this is not something which slows down the proceedings. So in practice, there are really a lot of obstacles. And I think, um, as I said before, that the real challenge is to see whether we can, and rather than throwing the whole thing out, find mechanisms to overcome those obstacles, to find the middle ground where the process is, is as meaningful as it can be. Um, while not being too time-consuming, too resource-intensive. And I do think there are some um, changes that can be made in the procedures, for example, that would take us further in that direction. But as King has said, it's still pretty early days and there's a lot of trial and error that is, is still going on.
1: Yeah, when we talk about meaningful participation as well, what comes to my mind is what, what would a victim consider meaningful? And that raises the issue of why victims are choosing to apply and why they they want to participate. What is your sense of that desire? Like why, why do people want into the system?
2: Well, um, what I can say about it is that um, in my experience working for the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, the very first reason why victims um, decided to participate was a symbolic reason. They wanted to be part of um, the concept of a tribunal that fights impunity in Lebanon. And I have to say that because they perceived Lebanese society as one that um, does not go after the perpetrators, in the beginning they were simply grateful for being given the chance of participating as a victim. But as they evolved in their participation status, as they learned what um, the modalities of participation are and how the proceedings um, progress, they started developing other needs, which I found it I found to be remarkable and a very, very positive development. They started having demands, which I think that's what uh, participation should be about. They started having opinions of what the lawyer should say in the courtroom. They started asking questions about why the judge decided in one way or another. And I think needs of victims evolve. And I think... Um, Um, very positive example is when indeed they develop some more needs that are very much characteristic to the criminal procedure, that they understand that this is what the criminal procedure can give to them and this is what they can expect. The problem is when the victim's needs have nothing to do with the criminal process and that is a responsibility of the lawyer to explain at the very beginning what this process can give and what it cannot. And sometimes it will have to be repeated. And sometimes it will still not be heard because there is no other avenue for that particular victim to... Um, at least wish for those needs to be addressed. So they will still see it as some symbolic hope of their needs being addressed, even though there is nothing there uh, that can uh, respond to that. But I believe that it's it's an educational process. And I think this is why it's very important that a lot of the victim representation um, happens locally, happens where the victims are, happens through education of the individuals of what it means to be a participating victim and explaining to them again and again what this process can give them and what it cannot.
0: And I think um, it's a particular challenge at the ICC because as Kinga says, victims have a lot of needs which the criminal justice process can't necessarily deliver. And I think we have to own the reality that some victims do choose to participate um particularly I, mean, I think it varies massively between individuals and different communities in different contexts but for sure i've seen some victims where i've felt that their motivations for participating are that they have material needs that they want met that they're interested in reparations and i also don't think we should shy away from that and um treat it as something to be ashamed of because Reparations is also an entitlement; it's a right that the victims have. The difficulty um, is the practical obstacles that that come between the victims and achieving that right. And it's particularly complicated at the ICC because there is the possibility of reparations under the statute, um, and it makes it very hard to manage people's expectations about having reparations from the court because there are so many unknowns. Um, At the Lebanon tribunal, because there are no reparations in the proceedings, it was possible to tell people clearly this is not something that this criminal justice process can deliver. We can look at other options, but this trial will not deliver that. At the ICC, it's complicated because the victims hope for reparations. Um, Sometimes they have very particular demands for what they want, which when you look at them globally will cost huge amounts of money. So you want to help your clients to understand what their realistic expectations can be, but there are so many unknowns, it's very hard to know what to tell them. You don't know whether there will be a conviction without which there can be no reparations. And you also don't know even if there is a conviction whether there will be sufficient funds to to put the chamber in a position really where they could feel comfortable ordering reparations of the sort that the victims often want. So I think it it is really difficult to effectively manage people's expectations when they often really have very um, considerable needs and it's very understandable that they want those needs to be met through the court.
1: It seems to me that what you're describing is a kind of mediation that the representative has to mediate between this international criminal justice mechanism and their clients, and these institutions and individuals are often worlds apart in terms of their expectations for international criminal law, in terms of their level of education and legal understanding. How do you, as a practitioner, balance you know, your duty to... I guess represent the wishes of your client but also your understanding of the limitations of what they're trying to achieve. I think it's not
0: so different to what you do in a domestic context where you have um, some reason for pessimism about the outcome in a case you you advise your client as frankly as you can of the reasons why you're doubtful and then you go back to the court and you fight as fearlessly as you can for what your clients wanted, even if you believe that you're unlikely to succeed. So, um, you know, it's, it's just that there is that added difficulty of the height of the expectations that people have had. And, and I think particularly, you know, in the Ugandan context and some of the other places where the ICC is working, um, it, it's clear that people have had such a bad experience of justice that when the ICC comes along, their expectations are really, really high. They think that the court has the power to do things that their criminal justice systems have not been able to do. Um, And so there is that really high expectation that has to be dealt with, um, whereas maybe in in a more familiar setting, people have maybe more realistic expectations of what their justice system can achieve for them.
2: Yeah, that, that's that's really um, a big problem, and I I totally agree with what Megan said. Um, when the victim comes from a society that is perceived by the victim as uh, not delivering justice, then. Um, the victim concentrates uh, his or her hope in this institution uh, somewhere that it idealizes. And when the lawyer arrives and says, well, we cannot do this, we cannot do this, and we cannot do this, that is the first big moment of disappointment. And what I've also noticed is um, that some of the victims will develop certain needs in the process that have nothing to do with the criminal procedure, but have to do with their own life. So if, if they go through a medical issue, um, they start developing a particular need or a particular hope that the court can address that medical issue, especially if they perceive that medical issue as connected to the crime that they have suffered um, a few years back. And it is very, very hard for a lawyer to draw a line. And we lawyers, were also humans. And we tend to understand the problem of the victim, and we tend to relate to it. At the same time, um, we are there to tell them what the limitations of this particular process are. And it's it's very difficult to keep this conversation going, and it's very difficult for some of these individuals to understand that their needs cannot be responded, um, cannot be addressed by. His procedure, um, um, wholly and 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 totally. Um, at the same time, I would also say that these conversations are not only difficult because of uh, their content, but also because of the vulnerability of the victim. And I'm sure that's the same in domestic procedures as well. Uh, Lawyers have to have a certain set of skills to deal with clients who are victims of a crime. And if we don't have that set of skills, and we don't know how to explain certain limitations, then we might cause more damage. And we might also be um, inclined to make promises just to soothe the particular individual and that is again can lead to uh, very um, unfortunate situations
1: it seems um, that there's real issues there about a risk of secondary victimization and I wonder what's your feeling of how responsive international criminal courts that deal with victim participants have been to that and are they adapting to to meet that reality of, of these risks
2: Well, that's actually quite a question. Um, I think courts have started realizing that dealing with victims and involving them in the um, international criminal process um, comes with certain um, other responsibilities that go beyond um, legal procedure. And I'm talking here about psychosocial support. And of course, um, support for witnesses is something that is already ingrained in in the international criminal tribunals, the ICC. But support for victims simply because they are participating victims and not necessarily witnesses is a new idea. And it started um, developing exactly because um, it is more and more perceived that these victims can be re-traumatized by simply being participating victims and having certain expectations and those expectations not being met. Um, And I I believe that there has to be a strategic rethinking of the role of the International Criminal Tribunal, I'm talking here in general about International Criminal Tribunals and courts, of how much of the responsibility they are ready to take in this respect. As we know, the um, ECCC, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, they used um, NGOs and in, well, they are not intermediaries, they'd used NGOs and uh, other parties to address this particular need of the victims. Um, at the STL, it is um, the some of the registry sections that are doing part of this, but because of the small number of victims, the need is not so high and then Megan can talk about what the ICC is happening but i think it's still it's still at a very incipient phase yeah i mean obviously in terms of the court doing positive or taking positive
0: actions to address people's existing needs that arose out of their victimization and give them ongoing psychosocial support. At the ICC there's a massive challenge with it just by virtue of the victim numbers in most of the cases and the fact that in many of these contexts there are no existing service providers or very few. So you know there are some efforts that are being made. The Trust Fund for Victims at the ICC has what it refers to as its second mandate where they operate in situation countries where the ICC is working and they provide support to victims of the crime whether or not they're participating in the court's work and I think that um, enhancing the work of the trust fund in this area is actually one of the most valuable things that the International Criminal Court could do because it's a mechanism which isn't dependent on the success of the trial isn't dependent on your ability to complete an application form and be accepted into a particular trial so it's much more wide-reaching. Um, but I do think as well as there's much more that the courts could do in terms of not only doing something proactive to address victims' needs but in terms of ensuring that they comply with the do-no-harm principle. There is definitely a need for more, for example, staff training, training of people like myself, um, external counsel, all the various other people who by virtue of the court being involved in a situation go and engage with the victims about what they've been through there needs to be, at the moment, there's very little resourcing of that. Um, and that's that's something which obviously also comes at a price, you know, setting up proper systems to ensure that people are trained in the way they do things so that harm is minimised. But I think there's a long way to go in addressing that need.
1: Do you think, I think when you're talking about victims as a humanising role in international criminal law, and I'm thinking about the need for greater resources and greater buy-in to ensure this no-harm principle. is Does it ever strike you that perhaps international criminal law is more interested in victims as a legitimising role in the abstract than they are in ensuring some real benefit to the human beings that have actually suffered these harms? I think we all
0: worry about that quite a lot. and. I, I want to believe that there's nobody cynically thinking along those lines. You know, there is no big boss in the International Criminal Court who's thinking let's use these victims to legitimise ourselves. But it is true sometimes that when you walk into the foyer and you see all the very large photographs of victims of the crimes and then you walk through into the courtroom and you feel that you're coming up against barriers, sometimes the disconnect strikes you and you think, are we involving victims for the benefit of the court and its legitimacy or are we really working to advance the interests of the victims. And, I mean, like any question like this, the answer is going to be a mixture depending on the individuals. I think there are a lot of people who are genuinely committed in the system and who are fighting very hard. Um, uh, my concern is with the, is at the level of the um, funding, um, not only in the ICC but I think in all of the courts, you know, that the money and the decision-making lies with states who control the institutions and they are often you know, they're budget conscious and they don't want to spend money on things which they see as optional extras. And unfortunately, too often, the victims are seen as an optional
2: extra. Uh, that's exactly the crux of it, the way I see it. Um, uh, but just to go back to a point, there is definitely image building going on. Not, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that it's in a cynical way. I, I think it's done for the reasons of showing that international criminal justice is about people after all. Um, And it is also about resources. But more importantly, perhaps, um, there are still a lot of voices that say international criminal procedure is about the procedure. It's about the prosecution and the defense and the judges deciding. And this victim participation thing that is new, and that um, challenges this particular um, setup, this very conservative setup, is is still not being understood by, by many. Um, it doesn't change the setup of the courtroom that much, but it brings in a lot of needs and it brings a lot of responsibility, which I believe international criminal justice just starting to understand now that okay if we have victim participation then it's not just about two or three extra lawyers in the courtroom and a few extra provisions in the statutory documents it's also about having registry units that are equipped both resource with resources and um, staff to deal with the needs of the victims is about um, having NGOs working together with us it's about uh, trauma experts and psychologists and they is this entire whole new world that uh, comes with it. And I think we're not understanding the repercussions yet, that it's it's changing. And I think it's a good change, by the way. I don't think we should be so conservative. I think it people should be part of it. The victims should be part of it. But I do believe that it's going to take a while before every actor in this particular uh, field understands that victim participation is not just um, a facade. It it has a lot of content.
1: I interviewed uh, uh, someone that worked with victims in Cambodia once who spoke of the C being like the roots of the tree, but often what is of most benefit is the tree that grows from it, and that strikes me to be similar to what you're saying. is It's not just about a court, it's about organizations that develop psychosocial support and mm-hmm. the empowerment I think you you know what you were saying earlier about victims becoming more critical speaks to a legal empowerment that can be a, quite an interesting side effect of participation in these systems particularly when people are coming from countries where they have not been accustomed to justice and have, have had you know their wishes from a justice system thwarted within their own domestic spheres so I think that's really interesting but it raises an issue of what international criminal law itself is for. So I guess that's my final question to you is, you know, what can international criminal justice achieve in the aftermath of atrocity and authoritarian regimes?
0: I really like the analogy of the tree because I think it is it is good to think of it as a starting point and as a limited starting point. Maybe it has the potential to grow into something but may actually not eventually do so. I mean, I think we we all have to be really realistic about what can be achieved, particularly when you work at the International Criminal Court and you see the, the, the scope of the harm which has been done by a conflict. So many crimes, so many people impacted by the crimes and often one or two cases, very small number of accused people being tried, very small number of crimes being tried. Many of the victims feel frustrated that they want their case to be brought before the court and it's not happening. So I think... All we can see it as is one tiny piece of the process and hopefully not just an isolated piece but a piece that can actually be a starting point that will develop into other things i think that's the best case and when we're talking about victim participation i think that means victim lawyers seeing their role um, as a much more holistic one than just standing in the courtroom at, at the court that they've been appointed by and speaking on behalf of their specific clients in that forum but of actually taking some personal responsibility to do work outside that forum because you have to recognize that that's not the place alone where your clients are going to get their needs met so it's going to take political um, manoeuvring, advocacy, fundraising, um, you know, in their domestic setting and maybe elsewhere to try and get their needs met in other ways and I think that's the best thing sometimes that you can do for your clients, you know, say it was a starting point that we were put in contact with you through this institution but actually the justice process is not going to be fully fulfilled by this one trial um your needs are not going to be fully met by criminal justice anyway um so there there definitely have to be many other things that contribute
2: yes i I don't have much to add to that i think um international criminal justice is a piece of a puzzle um a bigger puzzle um An atrocity, especially a mass atrocity, cannot be addressed and uh, communities cannot be reconciliated and denial cannot be um, totally um, uh, fought over by um, a criminal judicial institution. It's just, I think it's an unfair expectation. Um, and I agree with Megan that there is a lot of work to be done in international criminal justice um, to address the needs of the victims, but there also has to be a realistic um, perspective on it. What is it that international criminal justice has to address? Um, and and I think the answer to that is not a simple answer, but there has to be a limitation and... Um, too expecting too much uh, from the ICC or the ad hoc tribunals or um, any of the hybrid tribunals um, I think sets them up to failure in the eyes of the communities so I think it is very very important to clarify at the outset what these courts can do. Do you
1: remain optimistic about the future of international criminal justice?
2: Always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't be in this field if I wasn't. I'm I'm not sure that my optimism is based on uh, very um, logical and rational arguments, but I just choose to be optimistic. Yeah, I think there's always a combination of optimism and
0: pessimism, which fluctuates day by day. But overall, as King says, we wouldn't keep doing the work if we didn't think that there's a possibility to, to at least improve the way that things are working to
2: some extent.
1: Well, thank you very much for uh, sharing your views with us today, Kinga and Megan.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I would just like to clarify that the views that I'm expressing are my own and do not necessarily represent the views of my former and current employers.
1: You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen, and our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Clean, and this was LawPod.